Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be a fun episode. Um, if you love movies like I do, I'm a big movie freak. You're going to love this episode. This gentleman I have on, a great friend I just made, truly amazing. What an underdog story. Um, and now he's actually getting to work with probably one of the greatest actors, I'm not going to tell you who it is until later, but definitely welcome. Naveed, welcome to the show. Say hi to VM Nation. Richard, thanks so much for having me on, and I'm excited. I'm a fan of the show and uh, really excited to be here and having this conversation with you. Oh, man, it, it's truly my honor. Uh, I can't wait to see the movie. I actually, I've got two hours out of my time tonight that I'm just going to go see and hang out and watch it. And I love oh, wow. the title of the movie because... It's called The Last Victim. But I love um, just the title because I've always been taught ever since I started changing my mindset, you know, we can either be a victim or a victor. So I just love the name of the title of the, of the movie. Thank and you. we will talk about who's in it later. But how are you doing and what's going on in your world? I'm doing well. Uh, it's literally five weeks from the moment the film came out. Uh, so I've been at it for about four and a half years, day in and day out, uh, just uh, uh, breathing um, and living this movie. Uh, so the last four weeks have been a little bit of a reprieve. Uh, now, uh, it's like, you know, your baby goes to college. Uh, th that's the feeling that I have. And but it's also about possibilities. Like I've been thinking about what's next and and kind of basking in this moment, um, you know, with the film going out there and me getting calls from unlikely places uh, where people appreciate uh, the work that you've done. Um, so that's where I'm at uh, mentally right now. So from Chicago, you know, your family's originally from India. Uh, yeah. So talk to us a little, little bit. Uh, what kind of kid were you growing up and how did you become the man that you are today? So uh, I was born uh, in this place, uh, Coimbatore, uh, city of Coimbatore in Tamil Nadu. But I pretty much grew up in the coast of Kerala. It was a city called uh, Calicut until my parents moved to Chicago when I was about 12. Um, I think um, I was a restless kid. You know, I, I was a troublemaker a little bit. Uh, and uh, but, but at the same time, I was curious about uh, things like I was always curious about nature, curious about people, curious about the way uh, things work in the world. Is there an order or not? So I was always pondering these things, I remember, uh, growing up. Um, and my childhood, early childhood in India, and my rest of my childhood here in the U.S. and growing up to be an adult here shaped to be who I am. I think I have a very unique perspective on this world. Um, I'm an insider uh, in both places. Like I can I can go to India and be an insider and I can 
uh, be an insider here. But at the same time, I can flip on a switch and be an outsider here and there. So I think um, that gives me perspective. Like, you know, if there's something hypocritical about whether it's your identity as an American or your origin as an quote unquote Indian American, um, I'm able to flip those switches and, you know, sort of uh, bring that honesty out, you could say. So now, like I said, one of my best friends, his family came from India and yes. he and but they came over second generation and but they came, you know, I think from Bangladesh and some of them were from Calcutta and they grew up very poor. And when they came to America, I think they came maybe the same age or maybe a little bit younger. They realized that even the poorest kids in the United States were better off than some of the richest kids in India. So what was it like coming over as a 12 year old and seeing two different types of people, two different kinds of worlds? Absolutely. I mean, my background was a little different. Um, you know, Kerala is more of a, I would say like a rural state and, and probably at the time was not as populated as other parts of India. Uh, so I had almost like a, a small town, life. So I was insulated from big cities uh, for a very long time while we were in India. So it was, it was more nature and, uh, and, and water and things like that. But the one thing I did notice is the leftover. Uh, I, I grew up in a post-colonial India, but that was also um, not truly socialistic, but it was a, it was a socialist society. Um, so from that standpoint, what I remember is that a lot of the dreams, um, were stifled. Uh, a lot of the, you know, people lived like mediocre lives. Like if someone took on a job, they lived, they stayed with that job for 25 years and they retired after that job. Uh, whether you're an artist, a musician, um, or if you're an entrepreneur, uh, there were rarely a few who like rose to the top. At least this was my lens looking at the world until I was, you know, 12 years old. Um, I saw a lot of people with a lot of, you know, dreams who were just doing these, um, you know, office jobs or, you know, worked at a bank or at a factory or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with it. But I think uh, one of the things that struck me as soon as we made the move to the U.S. was, uh, you know, the opportunities. You know, uh, I think at the time India had, you know, you had like right after high school, you had four choices. They called it like, if you were in the first group, you did math and you became an engineer. Uh, the second group, you went to med school. The third group was commerce and they sort of uh, looked down on it. And the fourth uh, and the outcast of it was the arts. You know, so if you had anything to do with the arts, you're like, you're an outcast, you know. Whereas when I came here, I found that a lot of my family members had already um, because, you know, become to they, they were thriving in whatever, whether, whether they were doctors, whether they were accountants, whatever it is, they were thriving in what they did. And, um, immediately you can see that, uh, there's a lot of opportunity. And when you go to school, um, the, the amount of choices you had, uh, so I saw that there's a freedom here to choose. And there was a path for you to take, uh, from, from like the get go. Um, 
I hope I answered your question. No, that no, that's perfect. And you know, like I have a lot of friends that that are are in you know Indian. I have a lot of friends that are Filipinos. Um, a lot of them from Asia. You know, and one thing is they their families they always harped on education. Mm-hmm. You know, they always harped on you know, and something I say that you know leaders are readers. Yes. And learners are earners. Yes. And, you know, and I, so I think. You know, is that something that you were instilled in as a young as a young man to learn and not only from books, but also from actually watching others and seeing what other people are doing? Absolutely. That's one of the things culturally like uh, there's a there's a premium on education because education was a way out of your circumstances. And you have to be uh, perform at the top of your level for you to be able to um, achieve greater things. And the thing is, uh, at the time we were growing up, um, the opportunities in colleges, like the kind of application, the, the numbers of applications that a college would receive would be staggering and, and compared to the seats that they had um, available. Uh, so there was this, so I think um, uh, it, it was the survival of the fittest, I mean, you know, and, and survival. So one of the biggest schools in India is the IITs, which is the Indian Institute of Technology. And uh, it was something like 600,000 applications were submitted a year, and they would choose 1,800 students from those 600,000 applications to to be eligible. And the kids who came out of those schools directly had um, entry into the Ivy League schools and um, Oxfords and Cambridges of the world because, you know, they were... um, the elite that came from uh, that sort of competition. But but even when you looked at a normal uh, university or college, you know, the competition was high because the number, you know, at the time, the number of educational institutions that was available for the kind of population you had, uh, it, it was so low that, you know, so parents definitely instilled education uh, as number one. And number two is um, work ethic. You know, whatever you do, uh, and and like I said, you know, it was post-colonial, and it had uh, it had vestiges of that, and and you know, there was this young government that was trying to uh, figure out what to do with India, and you know, there was a lot of corruption at the very high level, so the people were sort of left to their own devices, and what they decided is, hey, if you get something, um, you know, put in put in the work, and and be very uh, sincere. Uh, and do it wholeheartedly, whatever the job may be. So those are two things that I think were instilled uh, from a very young age. So when you went to high school, did you start getting involved in the arts? And if you did, you know, what were your parents, you know, thoughts? Because I, I, I have some friends, you know, um, and their kids are in the arts, which I think, hey, you know, if you love the arts, you know, do it, be the best you can be. But there are some parents that look at the kids and they're like, mm, maybe not, you know, and they try to push them away from from whatever passion that they have. How was it growing up and having a passion for the arts? Absolutely. So my uh, mom's family were musicians. My, you know, uh, grandma, my grandpa, uh, my mom, you know, she did her uh, uh, bachelor's in music. Uh, however, you know, she never pursued a career in music. You know, it was still considered a hobby. Um, and so initially, I didn't have an inclination to arts more than 
I was interested in films. I was a huge fan of films and, uh, you know, I was watching a lot of films and things like that. But the plan was for my parents to, uh, is to slowly push me to be a, an engineer or a doctor, you know what I mean? So they were always like uh, having me focus on education. And the first time I brought up that I might want to pursue um, a career in film, uh, obviously was met with a lot of resistance, you know, the, the entire family, because, you know, you've uprooted yourself from a country and you've reestablished yourself uh, and you've made a lot of sacrifices in your own life for your children. That's how the parents and the grandparents and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the extended family looked at. And the second, you know, uh, you're looking at something like film, it's almost like a luxury. It's like, hey, you know, that's for people who don't have to uh, have careers. You know, it, it's it's like you're turning. And also they know that uh, the, the, the percent of people who actually succeed and, you know, your show shows about resilience and it's about, you know, do you have the resilience? Do you have the ability to, you know, uh, persevere uh, hardships and things like that and, and, and wait till you make it? And sometimes even then you don't make it. So uh, it, it was it was uh, it created a lot of anxiety in the family. And, and the, the way they handle it is they basically say, no, uh, you got to do this. And once you have a backup, they always talk about a backup. They're like, yeah. first of all, make a career for yourself make money and then you can pursue whatever you want to pursue. So that was, that was the sort of thing that I had to face uh, like right out of high school and through college, I would say. You know, okay. So one thing I really love about you, you know, I'm a big movie buff. Um, I was a big Bruce Lee guy. I love the story, you know, and he could have become a star and in his native country and just stay there and made films there. But he's like, no, I want to go to America and make it big. The same thing with, with Arnold, same thing. He could have stayed in Austria. So, you know, I'm sure that you could have maybe made a decision. Well, I just want to make, make movies for Bollywood. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to go mainstream. I don't want to go, you know, to work in, in, in the United States film industry. So was that ever a thought to just stay in, you know, make American movies? Or did you ever think about maybe going back to India, getting involved in that culture? Because it is your culture. Absolutely. Um, here's here's what I would say. Um, growing up here, I grew up watching. My, my dad introduced me to uh, some great Hollywood films from the time when I was like three or four years old. Uh, and when I was five, uh, I keep talking about this, that, uh, you know, he took me to watch First Blood, you know, and uh, and then he would show me Dirty Dozen yeah. Uh, where the Eagles Dare and Fistful of Dollars and you know I love your dad. <laughs> yeah, you know he was he was fantastic. So I think uh, I may be uh, fulfilling his dream that he probably had when he was growing up because he was a huge uh, Clint Eastwood fan and um, you know he was a huge uh, you know Hollywood uh, film buff. Paul Newman, um, all, all the greats of the time, you know he was a fan of. So he exposed uh, me to those films, and since I came here. When I was 12, uh, then I started watching, uh, you know, Spielberg films and um, Honey, I Blew Up Your Kid and like, you know, everything that was thrown at you from Jurassic Park to Indiana Jones, you know. Um, So you definitely I definitely had like a vision like at the time I didn't know much about filmmaking. I I just knew that I loved those films. 
it's it was later that I started to ponder about the people who work behind the scenes and create um, create these movies, and that's when I got interested in it. Um, so my goal was always to be in the film industry here, but there were a few times that I thought that I could go to India and get my feet wet there, um, and and you know go under the radar get some experience and then come back and establish myself here and i did work on a couple of films as a as a nuts and bolts producer but then the second i entered the industry i found out that it it could it couldn't be as far away from who i am as a person because you know you have to sort of grow up there and understand um, a lot of things there so even now when i if i ever go and make a film there it would be an uh from an outsider's perspective. It's like Danny Boyle going there to make Slumdog Millionaire or how they made Lion. It's like I, I would have a different lens to look at that world and, and be able to uh, tell my stories in that manner. So now did you go to go to college for uh, film? I did. Uh, I went for two years. Um, I was at Columbia College, Chicago, and uh, I majored in uh, directing. So, you know, I was just, before I got on, I don't know why, it must be a, a movie day because I have a friend of mine. Um, he's a movie producer. His um, he makes movies that are in the horror genre. So yes. that's it. And he said, you know, when before he when he first started, that you know he had to um, intern, and he worked for he said forever for twelve hours a day, no pay, but learning what it takes to set up, break down, get behind the camera. So he had to pay his dues. And I think that goes back to what you're saying with having a great work ethic. But I think without the work ethic, you're really not going to get very far. And without realizing that in order to succeed, you got to pay some dues. Absolutely. You know, so talk yes. about, you know, getting out of college and all right, I'm not going to start out directing Spielberg movies. I got to pay my dues. So what was that like? So, in short, it was like 18 years of paying dues, uh, and I decided to first direct my uh, uh, first film. Um, so getting out of college, uh, I volunteered at this uh, TV station, local TV station in Chicago, uh, and I learned editing there. So they had just bought this new Avid editing software, and, uh, and during, the, during those times, it was an actual console, um, and I was excited that they were, um, you know, teaching me how to edit while I was learning things at school. Um, and what ended up happening was they started interviewing celebrities. Um, so they had me do interviews uh, and things like that for the station. And I ended up meeting this director who was in town um, to promote his film. And, you know, I was probably 20 or 21 um, and arrogant enough to walk up to this director and say, hey, do you want to make a movie? Um, and, and he was a director from India, actually, incidentally. And, uh, you know, he was touring with this movie here. And I basically said, if you ever want to make a movie in the U.S., you know, you should call me and give him my card. And so what he did is, uh, you know, two months later, uh, I get this message on my answering machine. And uh, uh, I check it out. And he said, hey, I'm in New York. I'm shooting the small TV series. I want to talk to you about making a movie. Can you f uh, fly in there? So I had a job at the time. I was, I was still going to school. Um, but I took a flight 
and went to um, went to New York to meet with him. And he said, hey, let's make this movie. And he had this idea. Uh, long story short, he flew in to Chicago uh, and I had this, I was at this crossroads. If, if I wanted to pursue this career in making this movie, either I have to quit my job uh, and quit school and go in this direction or I say I finish school, I continue with my job and, and this becomes like a part-time hobby or whatever it is. And I, I had to quit my job. So I quit my job and I entered the industry. And as you said, um, in that film, I was hired as an assistant director. But by the time it was done, I was an accountant. I was a PA. I was a translator. I, was, uh, I had to wear multiple hats. But it was the ultimate plunge into filmmaking. Um, and to tell you the truth, I got paid zero dollars to, uh, I got my expenses paid. But other than that, I didn't get a salary to make that movie because it was like a internship. And it was a two-year process where I went from having a decent job, you know, I was, I was single, I was paying the bills and everything like that to, you know, you know, going through your savings. And uh, there was a time in that, during that film, that I had so much information in my head that someone would say, what's your name? And it'll take me 45 seconds to process that question and say my name, you know, but I would say that's where it started. And, uh, and it continued and, and it taught me more about work ethic, more about showing up, more about perseverance. You know, you're a, you're, you were, a, you're a vet, you've been in the army. Um, and to me, that was the boot camp. It was the boot camp that proved to me that, okay, if you can show up, go through this and show up on the other end, that you can have a at least a chance in this industry you know and i love it and like my t-shirt says today i the, today i decide yes and i believe that the three most important words in english language are today i decide because whatever we decide today is where we're going to end up five years from now yes so at that time you could have just sat back went to work went to school and like you said, you could have just done this part time as a hobby, but you made a decision that eventually changed your whole life. But you had to make that hard decision at that moment. And Absolutely. or else the, the, the opportunity was not going to be there forever. You know? Yeah. Opportunities are few and far between. What I realized is if I didn't grab the bull bites horn at that moment, my life would have taken an entirely different trajectory. While I was editing this movie, and sometimes, you know, these uh, inexplicable coincidences happen in your life. And while I was editing this movie, um, I ordered food from this restaurant and I went to pick up, it was during the, in the middle of the pan pandemic. And I um, drove over there to pick up the food. And I found out that I had driven into the same parking lot where my, office was that that I quit and it was almost 20 years to the day and my entire life flashed in front of me while I was waiting for my food uh, from the moment I stepped out of the office quit my job and now that and the reason why I quit the, quit the job was to go direct a film to go direct films and now I had directed my first film and I was editing it 
And it was almost like a testament to the journey and how it's, it's almost like the hero's journey. It's, it was like the coming home moment uh, 20 years later. I love that. Um, and that's weird you say that because my book is called The Hero's Journey. From oh, Dark. wow. Like, so that's pretty cool that you said that. But first, I, I want to thank our sponsors. Um, as we were talking earlier, you said you love coffee. I yes. love coffee. And I, I came out with my own coffee. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's twice the caffeine, no crash, um, tastes amazing. And I don't make any money off of it. That's the best part of the whole thing. Um, every penny that I make from the sale of it goes to help veterans that are struggling with homelessness and PTSD. So if anybody wants a great cup of coffee with an amazing mission, just write coffee down below and I'll get in touch with you. Um, talk to us. Okay, here you, now you work on this project, somebody else's project. For two years, uh, the movie comes out. Now what? Now, now where does Naveen go? What do you do? Okay, so again, um, I don't know who said it, but they say, you know, greatest things come from the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that process, you know, the film was a s- tiny little film and, um, you know, it was all the director's vision. I was just uh, supporting logistically. And at the end of it, um, you know, the film did not do too well. It, it went to a lot of festivals and things like that, but, you know, it didn't do well commercially. Uh, and it felt like it was a dead end. Uh, and and I was facing the decision of, do I go back to the workforce or do I wait for another opportunity? And in between, I you know, I was working on like small music videos or commercials or things like that. But, you know, having gone through this process and at the end of it, the the team gave me the producer credit. So I was never supposed to be the producer. But after I had done all this, they had given me this uh, uh producer credit on the picture. Um, but that's when I got a call from one of my uncles. Uh, you know, he was he was doing some show in Tucson and it kind of ties to the last victim. Uh, it really ties to the last victim. He had met uh, Doc Justin. So my un- uncle was a PhD from Cornell and uh, he had met Doc Justin, who was a professor of anthropology. Uh, and they had incidentally met and struck up a conversation. And Doc mentioned to him that, hey, I'm going to make this movie in Tucson. And my uncle's like, oh, my nephew just made this movie. Um, so why don't I connect you guys? And it was a random connection. And I called Doc uh, and spoke to um, him and his wife. And Doc said, hey, why don't you fly to Tucson? I want to know, uh, I want to interview you and see you know, if you can make this movie with me. So I flew to Tucson and he lived outside of Tucson, this big ranch. And I went over there and um, he brought three or four folders, um, and one of them was the last victim. Uh, but he had like these magazine cutouts and like one paragraph of ideas for like these three or four movies. And that summer, um, we sat on my laptop and typed up the first draft of the script for the last victim. And we were going to shoot it the next summer. Um, and long story short, you know, the main location burnt down, and we had to shelve the project which I picked up like 15 years later. But it was, again, um, I, was, I was at a crossroads and uh, facing all these decisions and, and that gave me a path. And what happened was while I was in Arizona, I was researching a lot of things and I'd figured out that there were these film tax credits um, that New Mexico 
for the first time, like there were like two states that uh, came out with the film tax credits. Mm -hmm. so I'd learned about it. And then I got a call from uh, someone I had met on the first film. And they said that, you know, they wanted to make a film. So it was almost like every dead end uh, and, and you're facing a crossroad, some door opens up. And but that only happens if you in my experience, at least, like if if you give your 100% and if you showed up and if you did everything you can and you hit a dead end, when you're about to give up, something opens up and on and on and on. So it was a series of things, series of um, instances like that, that made me continue through that through the journey. You know, one thing that, you know, one of my mentors talks about a lot, his name is Mr. Ed Milet. And he talks about the reticular, reticular activating system in the brain, that whatever you look for, you're going to find. Your, your mind is programmed that way. Like if you, if you go out and buy a new red Corvette, as soon as yes. you drive it off the lot, all you're going to see is red Corvettes. Because your, your mind is looking for that. So I think that if you're looking for success or you're looking for failure, you're going to find it. Absolutely. You know, you know, like um, Mr. Napoleon Hill was taught that um, your obsessions become your possessions. So I, I think, like you said, you know, that's something that you're actually you're you've just kept looking for more, looking for more, looking for more or because you didn't quit. Yes. Correct. Yes. So I've had the I've I've had the. Uh, uh, I've had the pleasure to have worked with a lot of mentors who I learned from. So Doc, uh, when I met Doc, Doc was about 67 years old and I was 23. And he told me about perseverance. He said, look, you could be as talented um, as you are. But he said, you know, you're smart. You know what you're doing. Uh, you're hungry. But he said, you have to you have to have perseverance. Um, and my other mentor, Stephen Milburn Anderson, um, you know, he made movies like South Central, which Oliver Stone produced. And so he's told me um, that it's in the process. Like you have to break, you take a big, uh, what is resilience? Resilience is the ability to um, take a big task and break it into micro steps and show up every day and finishing the job on a day-to-day -day basis. And it adds up. Uh, leg over leg, the dog got to Dover, was a saying that I heard a lot from Steve. Uh, so when we take a big thing, hey, we need to make this $8 million movie, and we need to cast this, and we need to do this, and stuff like that. If you look at the task in front of you, um, it's never going to... It's going to be intimidating, but, but once you break it down into... Uh, bite-size uh, chunks, then you're able to handle it. And, and you always keep your eye on the ball, but at the same time, not get overwhelmed by the, by the, by the task that's in front of you. So now let's talk about your, your, the new movie. Yes. Uh, I love it. The last victim. <laughs> um, so talk about the stars of the show. I'm not going to mention who they are. You talk about them because you have you are friends with them, and I've I think I knew four out of the five people, and I loved 
every one of them. So talk about your the new movie, what the movie's about. I mean, you don't have to give it all away, but you know, tell us what it's about, who it's, who it stars in, and and how did it, how was it making that movie? So uh, the movie's the last victim. It stars uh, Ron Perlman, Ali Larder, and uh, Ralph Ineson. Uh, obviously, Ron Perlman needs no introduction. Yeah. Um, Ali Larder, you know, she she's in films like uh, Final Destination, um, Resident Evil. She was in the TV series Heroes. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she's done a lot of great work, obsessed with uh, Idris Elba and things like that. And she's a fantastic action uh, movie star. Um, and Ralph Ineson, he is uh, one Game of the... Game of Thrones. Woo, I love Game of Thrones. Yeah, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter. Yeah. Uh he somehow figures out a way to get into some of the greatest uh, films and works with some of the greatest directors. So it was a, it, it was an absolute honor to work with uh, actors of that caliber. Um, the last victim I would say is a, uh, is an homage to seventies, uh, eighties thrillers. So it has a combination of road thrillers like breakdown and deliverance, but at the same time, it has a neo-Western aspect of it where, um, you know, you're in the Southwest and it has that romantic, um, you know, vast desert. Uh, but at the same time, you know, what New Westerns have in common is like, you know, crime or, or uh, you know, s- some sort of things goes down and, and there's a sheriff who's investigating it. So we, uh, Ash uh, Lewis, the director, uh, the writer and I, we were both fans of, uh, you know, those genre films and we wanted it to be an homage to some of the greatest filmmakers uh, from the past. So it has um, nods to, you know, filmmakers like Sergio Leone, um, Sam Peckinpah to Coen Brothers, uh, to a little bit of Tarantino and uh, early Coen Brothers, I would say, and and some of early Spielberg. Um, but it's a slow burn uh, thriller. Uh, it, it it starts as a slow burn and, and it builds up as it goes along and uh, and we leaned into the neo-noir, uh, neo-Western genre. Um, and it, it's a, it's three stories. One is um, of uh, Jake uh, Samuels, who's this guy who's involved in this crime. Uh, one, the second one is a sheriff who's uh, investigating uh, the crime. And the third one is this couple who are driving cross country and who get drawn into this, uh, in this, uh, you know, chain of violence. So now let me ask you a question because, you know, um, I love, I love hearing about people's processes. For me, I will watch a documentary about a documentary being done about a documentary. I just love the behind the scenes and how. So what is the process of writing a, a script and then getting to directing it, producing it, and finally getting out there. What is the process really like? Again, um, the process is, processes to make a movie, in my opinion, um, is making a motion picture is making um, millions of micro decisions that ultimately turn into what you see uh, as a movie. So when you get a script, uh, the first thing that you do with a script is you break it down um, and you create a schedule. How many days does it take uh, to do it? Uh, what kind of actors, uh, like for example, uh, what are the combinations of actors that you need? 
and how many days do these actors uh, uh, show up to props, to vehicles, to locations, to on and on and on. From the schedule, what you do is then you break it down further and you create a budget. Uh, once you have a schedule and a budget, then you know most probably a director gets attached to the project, unless if the director is already involved uh, and he's a filmmaker on the project. And then what the director does is he creates a vision board, which is almost like a PowerPoint presentation of like, you know, the type of actors he sees in these roles or the the looks, the the type of lenses and cinematography and locations and uh, uh, on and on and on colors, costumes and those type of things. Uh, then the biggest component that needs to come together is uh, uh, is financing. You know, someone who needs to back the project, um, which could take, depending on how someone is established or not, it could take days to months to years to come together that next step. Once uh, you have financing in place, then what you have to do is you have to get the main uh, leads who are going to bring, uh, who are going to make the project bankable or saleable. Uh, so then what you do is you hire a casting director. The casting director further breaks down the script and gives you a list of names. You may already have a wish list, but they'll also give you realistic names based on your budget on um, you know who you could go after. Uh, then you go to the actors' agencies and give them offers, uh, depending on their availability and their interest. So sometimes the actors are not available at all. Other times, actors are available, but they're not interested in the script. Um, once they're interested in the script, then they have uh, a meeting of the minds with the director. Make sure you know, they're both trying to tell the same story. Um, once that comes on board is when usually you go into pre-production. Pre-production is where you fly into the location. So in this case, it was New Mexico. So we went into New Mexico, but we went, we flew into Arizona. We went to Utah. Uh, and, there, and then you go to other places like Georgia because of tax credits. Mm -hmm. And in this case, what we did is we, uh, for, for tax credits and budgetary purposes, we found a valley, um, the Okanagan Valley in Canada that looks like New Mexico. And we ended up shooting the entire film in the Okanagan Valley. Um, once you, you know, once you have the location, uh, you hire your key crew members. So that that is your director of photography, your line producer, your uh, line producers in charge of um, basically all the logistics and finance of the film. Then you hire your production designer. You hire your sound designer. Your stunts coordinator. So you, you hire your keys and then you go through about, um, let's say your shoot is for six weeks. The math is that you'll prep for 12 weeks. You do an official prep for 12 weeks. So then you have an office, a studio, uh, a shop where the production designer and the art department is working. Uh, you have a transportation coordinator who's like finding the vehicles. Um, so for those 12 weeks, you are, uh, you're in prep where you're making decisions about what what are the components you know what kind of uniforms the sheriff wearing what kind of colors the sheriff's car to uh props like what kind of gun uh to hat to sunglasses to whatever it is uh once that happens uh, on day one of the shoot uh, you know the day before or two days before the actors show up if it's an indie if it's a studio film sometimes the actors are involved months in advance they're doing rehearsals and 
you know, uh, stunt choreography and those type of things. Um, then you go through the process of actually making, shooting the film. Um, and I don't have to go too much into that. I mean, you know, you, you've obviously seen that. Yeah. Then you go into post-production. Uh, and with an indie, what happens is once the post-production happens, you also get a sales agent and they're actually shopping the film at markets worldwide. Um, so this whole process could take anywhere from 18 months to sometimes even five years from the moment you start. All right. So now something that I wrote down because it's been eating at me since we started talking. Uh, yeah. So you said you were sitting with this guy and you got four scripts in front of you. Yes. You turned three of them down. Yes. What was it about the one script? What was it? Because for me, I love, you know, I believe that everything is about the story. You know, it Absolutely. doesn't matter how great the graphics are, how great the explosions are. If there's not a great story, then it's pretty much worthless. So what was it that you picked that, that one out of the four? Absolutely. So there are a couple of components. One, one is definitely the story. It was uh, um, it was story and also uh, the ability to make it. So at the time, some of the scripts were so big that I know, like there was one called Maya Legend which was like an Indiana Jones. And I was like, even if we write it right now, I don't think realistically that we could we could be able to make it in the next 10, 15 years, um, just looking at it. But with this, you know, we were writing it in Arizona and the original script took place in Arizona. It had a charm about the old West, uh, you know, the, 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 the setting of the old West and the vast wilderness and the, the thing, uh, but, the other thing was it was a twist on uh, movies like Deliverance and Breakdown, which I loved uh, watching when I grew up. Great and, movie. Great yes. movie. And, and, uh, and it was indie. You know, Breakdown was, a, I think, like a you know, $50 million movie or whatever it is. This was much more of an indie. But uh, even in the indie, there was a charm about being able to shoot like a local diner or a feed store and, uh, and a trailer park. Uh, usually, you know, trailer parks in the Midwest and stuff are not that uh, good to look at. But, yeah. you know, but in Arizona, when it's set against the vast desert and there's this, you know, trailer sitting there, it's almost like a poor man's mansion. So there was a lot of just juxtaposition. And coming back to your original theme about resilience and things like that, the themes that this film dealt with was isolation. Um, what happens to humans who are isolated from the rest of society? And what happens in parts of society that has been ignored and people who um, grow up in poverty. So there were like subtexts uh, of that. And, and you know, it, it's like, does nature versus nurture, right? Like, what does nature have to do with who you become? And what does nurture? And how much of it is like, uh, has to do with who you become? And there are no like full answers, but it's an exploration of those those things when we uh, went into that. But obviously, the genre uh, of breakdown and deliverance, and the setting, uh, and some of the characters, the characters that inhibited this world was really charming. Um, so, or the potential of it, because we hadn't written it at the time, but the potential of the characters that could inhibit this world was really really interesting. Okay, now I you know and I I totally love that. Um... Now, a lot of people that I've talked to, and I've had, I think, almost 450 interviews, 
um, a lot of us, including myself, you know, sometimes like I'll, I'll sit there, but, you know, like knowing that I'm, I have you coming on, coming on, you know, knowing that several eight, nine figure earners coming on. And here I am a ninth grade dropout. And, and I sit there and think to myself, you know, I struggle with, and I think a lot of people struggle with imposter syndrome before they really start doing something. Like you said, you know, making a movie, I'm sure there had to be at some point where you're sitting there thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to be directing Ron Perlman and all these other great actors. Am I up for the challenge? Am I good enough? So how did you break through if you did have imposter syndrome? How did you break through it? To say that, uh, you know, I've had imposter syndrome um, only a few times in my life would be a lie. I mean, I deal with it even uh, today as we speak. Um, so when I was at the premiere, I felt like I was at somebody else's film. You know, um, I, you know, I was I was there to support somebody else. Um, and those are the times like when um, but it's it's like uh, some of these great mentors talk about do what scares you. Um, I I get into this because it scares the hell out of me. Um, and but I also know that there's a drive. There's a drive that pushes you in that direction. But at the same time, um, all your uh, alarm bells are ringing in your head. You're like, you know, you're you're about to take a plunge. You know, you, you're you're going to go into this. And um, so for the last victim, um, so until then I had built up a career as a producer, uh, a producer financier. And a lot of times what happens is, you know, they look at you as a, uh, as a guy who looks at Excel sheets and numbers. And I've myself felt when there are other uh, financiers who come and say, hey, I want to direct a movie, you know, you, you just cough, you know, basically like, Jesus, there's another guy who thinks he can direct or whatever it is. So my biggest insecurity was that walking into uh, making this movie uh, that people are going to think that. Um, and so what I did is I hired... Um, not hired. I actually was listening to a podcast like yours. It was a resist average and whatever they were talking, Tommy Baker, um, you know, the podcast host and a coach, what he was talking resonated with me. So I picked up the phone and dialed him and said, look, Tommy, um, I really want to know how to have you coach me, uh, to, to go do this thing. And Tommy had me, uh, you know, after a few questions, you know, he had me sign up for one of his courses and I signed up and we did a lot of Zoom sessions. Um, and after that, um, I flew to uh, Phoenix and this was February uh, 22nd of 2019. And I filmed the movie in November. Um, and he had me do this whole uh, vision quest. You know, uh, he basically had me uh, only think about my goal the day before and the next day, he had me show up at the foothills of this mountain. And uh, I've talked about it in, in other places where, uh, you know, 10% up this mountain, uh, I, I didn't know I could make it. And I was blind. I was out of breath. And, uh, and, and every time I would stop and I would lean forward and, and try to catch a breath, he would say, he would say, think about that goal. And I would remind my, myself, the last victim, the last victim. Um, 
and I got on top of the mountain, you know, like I, I was bleeding because, you know, I slipped. It was uh, 29, 30 degrees uh, in Phoenix. Uh, we showed up at four in the morning. Everything was slick. Um, you know, my hands, hands were bleeding. My shin was bleeding. And I was holding this rock that he had me carry up the last 10% of the mountain. And it, it was like ice. And he said, these are all the baggages that you're going to leave on top of this mountain. Um, and I felt this clarity on top of that mountain as the sun was coming over the horizon. Uh, and all the doubts, all the fears, everything was speaking in my ear. Every, every time I say the last victim, you know, you can't do it, this, that, and the other. It was, it was similar to me not being able to climb that mountain. Uh, so metaphorically, that mountain was in my heart. Every time I ran across uh, a challenge, I would go back to the mountain and, and draw courage from that. And I would come back to that day on set and I would say, okay, just another step, just another step, just another step. We had minus eight degrees. We were supposed to shoot it in the summer and it, it plunged into the dead winter um, of Canada. I, I thought I was from Chicago and I was like, hey, I got this. But Canadian winter was another uh, whole another animal. And, um, you know, the actors, we had we had them on fall gear and there were minus eight degrees uh, temperature. And there were times where Ali had to lie on the cold, hard ground. Um, there were times where the uh, only thing you're thinking about is how to, you know, be warm. And, and as a army uh personnel you know how it is it's it's like yeah. all you're thinking about is how i'm gonna survive this cold and 10 minutes after you get out of your car and you're walking into this wilderness you know that the only heat source real heat source is being left behind there and and you're walking into this uh into this terrain um and you have these small tents with these propane heaters uh unless you're facing the propane heater and you're putting your face and your hand to it it doesn't make a difference. Um, so during those brutal circumstances, you have a story to tell. You have a shot to get. You have to perf you have a performance to get. And you're not think you know, so it's it's the mountain you go back to and you say, okay, this is another challenge. You know, you don't think you can pass this. When an audience member watches it, they don't care the circumstances. They don't care uh, you know, what you're feeling or what the actor was feeling at that moment, all they care about is, hey, do I have the performances or not? Mm -hmm. So at that moment, you'll have to draw courage and say that I have to stay in the present and I have to be able to say if I got the performance or not, do I need another take or not? Do I need an adjustment or not? And be able to articulate that. And also being as a leader to be able to take your team through this when people are falling apart, uh, you know, trying to help them out or vice versa. If they're there to help you, you're falling apart and they're there to help you. Uh, not having the presence of mind to accept that help and, and have that humility or or, or uh, being grateful for, for those things. Um, so, yeah, so so it was, uh, you know, it, it was it that that process. Uh, and coming back to your question about the imposter syndrome, um, you you get to the uh, when Ron Perlman shows on set, you have on top of all this, you have this out of body experience. You're like, you're like, oh my god, you're not supposed to be here. 
you're not supposed to be here. You're an idiot. You know, he's going to call you out and uh, things like that. But but what you do is because you've prepared, because you showed up, that's where you derive your confidence from. And then you you shut those voices in your head and say that, you know what? Uh, I deserve to be here. I've put in the work. I've, you know, now the work will show, like, you know, have the confidence in the work to show itself, um, you know, when, when you're put in that moment. All right. So now last couple of questions. Um, yes. Now, I, I realize that, you know, everybody I meet, I can learn from. Everybody has an experience that I can learn from. So I want to ask, you know, about your, your three stars. Um, and this would be a two part question. Uh, what was it like working with them? And you can go through each one. And what did you learn from working with that person? Yes. Um, I mean, I'm going to sound cliche. It was a dream come true. Working with them is a dream come true. That's number one. But um, each one of them had a different work ethic, a style. And as a director, one of your main jobs is to be able to uh, be able to communicate and work with an actor, uh, and and that you you are saying you're telling the same story. Um, so I'll go with Ron Perlman because he's the, he's the veteran. Um, with Ron Perlman, uh, my job was to just make sure that we are on the same page as far as the story that we're telling. So we met the day uh, before and we talked about the story. And when he showed up on set, he showed up as Sheriff Hickey. And with him, what I saw was that he has mastered his craft um, to the core. So one of, one of the examples is uh, not only like how, how he gets it on take one, but uh, ADR, when you meet someone at post-production and they have to replace a dialogue that they have uh, uh, rendered on set, now they have to repeat it. It's a really tough thing for a lot of actors to get into that mindset. Now you're sitting in a studio, you're not on set, you're not you're not wearing the costumes and things like that. So it's a it's a hard thing to have. Ron Perlman comes on set uh, on on the studio, nails it on the first take, um, and that talks about his dedication to his craft and and how much of a pro he is. Where it's second nature to him, you know he he shows up and he hears it once and he can repeat it. Um, Ralph Ineson is someone who really deeply dives into the uh, backstory of the character and, and internalizes the character. So I, I credit that to his British um, training, the British th theater training. Um, so he and I spent a lot of time uh, talking about the character before set, and he would send me ideas. He would write me paragraphs about the backstory, where Jake would have been, and you know he... Uh, he was broken because of this or that um, and and to derive those type of things. So it was really interesting to see how he himself was a, a storyteller and and that he was he was feeding his subconscious so that when he gets on set, uh, he can go to those places to bring out the performances. And that's why he's able to deliver such per powerful performances um, in anything that he takes on. Um, and Ali Larder is is our pure physicality 
work ethic um, and her ability to, she is very, very, very detail oriented. So she needs to know every detail of everything, why this character is doing this. And, um, and then in those brutal uh, circumstances, a lot of people could, um, you know, they could, they could start um, getting unhinged um, in those circumstances. But what she used is she took the pain, she took the suffering and she brought it into her performance. And uh, so it was really inspiring to see all these three different uh, veteran stars who, uh, who are great in their own way, uh, approach their craft and, 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 you know, bring it to the table. So now where do we find the movie? How do we watch it? How do we get it? Okay. Good news is the movie's everywhere. Um, so if you have Xfinity or Dish or AT&T or whatever it is, you can get it on demand. Uh, if you have any digital pl platforms like Amazon, Vudu, um, all those transaction platforms, you can rent it. I think the price just dropped, so it should be uh, $5 uh, to view it right now. Um, and as of yesterday, uh, it hit Redbox, so you can rent it on Redbox. Uh, now you can buy the DVD or Blu-ray on Amazon or Walmart. Um, and it's also in the Walmart store. So it's pretty much anywhere that anyone wants to go look for it. Um, and all they have to do is, you know, Google the last victim uh, and type in Ron Perlman or one of the actors, and they'll be able to find um, a platform where they can consume it right now. Okay. So now the last question I want to ask, um, I am a veteran, uh, 23 years in the military, and I've talked to a lot of veterans when they get out. And like you're talking about earlier, um, we get lost. And when a person gets lost, a lot of times they isolate. Yes. So from everything, you know, you've learned about, cause I'm sure you did a lot of back backstory and then studying about isolation. Yes. If somebody is isolating, what can they do to get some help to where they can actually not be isolated anymore and become part of something or become part of a community? Yes. Um, so although not to that extent, I do feel isolation as well uh, because most films take about five years to make and you create a family while making it. And when the film comes out, um, you know, everyone's gone their own way. And uh, you don't, if you don't have the next project lined up, you feel like really alone and isolated. So I can relate to that, but also uh, researching isolation for the movie um, and, and working, doing character study on all these things. I would say um, it's having, it's taking the first step uh, to get out of your house and go to a place where you could start making connection with people. And so, a lot of the times when you're isolated, what happens is you're in your own head and you're believing everything, all the doubts, all the uh, insecurities or whatever it may be, demons that you may have from the past, uh, you're living with that. And and it's it's a sometimes for a lot of people, it's a downward spiral and it feels like, you know, they can't get help. But to me, every time I get there, uh, it's it's taking that first step uh, and saying, you know, what, you know, finding uh, a kindred soul. And it may not be the easiest thing to do, but when you reach out, like you said, uh, you're looking for that red Corvette um, and now you see it everywhere. And if you look for that help, uh, you will start seeing it. And then it's a lot about 
uh, giving. For example, if, if people are not uh, being open to you originally, you know, try to find places where you can contribute, like where your skills could be useful, even though it's not directly related to uh, your combat. Um, uh, it, it's not a thing that you're doing combat, but it could be a local community service thing where a lot of your work ethic and your uh, leadership could be used. And and once you start giving, a lot of times what happens is that's when you can see that from your experience. I mean, you started this podcast and you're giving. And because of that, a lot of uh, people get attracted to that energy and and they come out of the woodwork and, and uh, start creating a community. So I think it goes down to taking that first step and and uh, and also if there are good books uh, or podcasts or whatever you can listen to people who are going through similar things, then you can use that as a stepping stone to understand that, hey, this is not me on my own alone. Um, I have help out here and, and going out there and getting that help. I love it, brother. So, guys, if you're watching this, make sure you go out and get get the get the movie. I'm going to be watching it tonight with me and my kids. I'm so excited to watch it. Um, Thanks so much, Richard. And guys, um, like I said, if you love coffee, make sure you write coffee in the comments um, if you love to help veterans. So, Naveen, I just want to say, brother, I'm very grateful and honored to be able to just spend time with you and hang out with you today. Thank you, brother. And it, it is my honor. Uh, what you're doing, uh, you know, I watch your show. I'm a fan. And what you're doing for the veteran community uh, is priceless. And and uh, keep 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 doing what you're doing because there uh, there's there needs to be a lot more people who needs to do uh, that for our community. I love it. So, guys, make sure that you like this. Make sure that you subscribe. Make sure that you leave a comment for Naveen, especially if you're going to watch the movie. Leave a comment how you liked it. Um, and guys, like I always end with a quote by Miss Oprah Winfrey. She says, if you ever want to help somebody else, help yourself, help somebody else. That's Absolutely. the best you can do. So I just want to say, Naveen, thank you so much. I'm so grateful and honored. And I cannot wait to watch this movie tonight. Thank you so much, Richard. I'm All excited. Right, Great week. And guys, remember, vertical momentum, the only way to go is but up. I'll catch you guys tomorrow. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.